the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. Thanks for joining us on this Thursday installment. You can follow us at danproftshow.com, on social media at danproftshow, and of course at danproftshow.com. Podcasts are there as they are on iTunes and Spotify. Uh, yesterday, we addressed the uh, article of impeachment that will frame next week's imp- impeachment trial 2.0, as well as the Trump defense team's answer, written answer to that article of impeachment. And uh, it's pretty clear from the answer that they were not going down the road of using impeachment trial 2.0 as a venue to relitigate claims of election irregularities. And that was made uh, even more explicit by Bruce Castor yesterday. Uh, He is a a member of Trump's defense team. Plenty of questions about how the election was conducted throughout the country, but that's for a different forum. And I don't believe that's important to litigate in the Senate trial because you don't need it. President Trump has plenty to win with what he has. Right. Which is what I said yesterday. The idea that you have an acquittal in your back pocket per Rand Paul straw vote on jurisdiction, Senate jurisdiction, 45 Republican senators saying the Senate doesn't have jurisdiction to uh, to to, to, uh, conduct this trial after he has left office. That's what you need. It would be legal malpractice to jeopardize an acquittal. That's essentially what Castor saying. But he also added, I don't know where people got that notion uh, that was some sort of litmus test to get to defend the president, because as you saw from the document I filed, which had to be approved by the president personally, there isn't anything in there about the election being stolen. And there isn't. We went through it. There is a pushback against the assertion that uh, President Trump saying election fraud had occurred, which is part of the article of impeachment, somehow is the run up to the incitement to riot. Uh, So there was pushback in the answer, but there's no specific claims about uh, election irregularities. Um, And so it's it's surprising to me why you have some conservatives, uh, including talk show hosts and pundits, suggesting, no, no, this is the perfect venue, the right opportunity to prosecute, to continue really, to pick up the prosecution of the election irregularities from 2020. It isn't. It isn't. What you have is an opportunity to very undramatically secure an acquittal for the president. The second one that he puts in his back pocket and says, which on 2.0 is now concluded. Now we can get back to the regularly scheduled issues that actually matter to the American people. And uh, and if he wants to present new information that could illuminate unresolved issues surrounding election regularity irregularities great 
that's the way you do it. Um, and it also calls to mind something I don't think that some of these people arguing that this is a good venue to prosecute election fraud claims. I don't think they understand what the left is doing. That they're not just trying to bury Trump and uh, rewrite his legacy as singularly January 6th. They're trying to use January 6th, as Jonathan Tobin eloquently writes in The Federalist, as their bloody shirt for the 21st century, nice Civil War reference on his part, to prosecute the Republican Party, to prosecute anybody who ever did so much as vote for Trump, and cast all of them as little more than accessories before, during, or after the fact to those few hundred people who did commit acts of violence on January 6th. They're trying to neuter the Republican Party and the conservative movement for the next couple of generations. They're not just looking at nailing coffins from the Trump era or securing the House and Senate in 22 or securing the White House in 24. They're talking they're looking at this as a way to sort of uh, do to the Republican Party writ large what they were able to do to the Republican Party with respect to uh, black voters in America by forever brandishing the Southern strategy, Nixon's Southern strategy as evidence that the Republican Party was racist. They want for the next 25 years to paint the Republican Party as the white supremacist confederacy that tried to overthrow the government. That's the story. And as Jonathan Tobin writes, the only possible response to the Democrats attack is to refute the charge that what happened on January 6th was anything like an insurrection or sedition. Of course, he's talking about those who were nonviolent. He goes on, even if the challenge to the Electoral College result was poorly reasoned and constitutionally impossible, the pro-Trump protest that the president addressed was neither illegal nor a threat to democracy, however misguided or intemperate his remarks might have been. Precisely. As Jonathan Turley, George Washington law professor, said uh, in the immediate aftermath, when everybody on the cable news channels, at least uh, CNN and MSNBC, trying to brand it an insurrection. He said, uh, I would call it more of a desecration than an insurrection, which is exactly right, and which is why it's shameful that uh, Republicans who have voted to impeach President Trump in the House, like Liz Cheney, who retained her post, as the number three in the House Republican caucus, not without an incident when 61 members of your caucus want you removed. That uh, doesn't speak to um, a real chumminess. Yeah, OK, we don't want to go so far as to remove her from the post. But uh, and, and Kevin McCarthy probably pursuing the Wall Street Journal advice and counsel of uh, uh, keep Liz Cheney there. Uh, keep uh, Ma- uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene with her committee assignments and, uh, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, we'll, we'll see how she proves herself out as a congressman. And uh, Liz Cheney, will see uh, how she proves herself out with uh, uh, 
uh, helping McCarthy and the leadership team try to regain the House in 2022. And let's get to focus on that mission as quickly as possible, rather than using Liz Cheney or Marjorie Taylor Greene as litmus test for what kind of Republican Party we're going to be. Sort of tackle that yesterday. Uh, so, so again, back to J- Jonathan Tobin. Yes, uh, Kinzinger and Cheney calling this an insurrection. They're doing the bidding of the left. They're doing the bidding of this branding campaign, this effort to gaslight the American people into, you know, the GOP is the white supremacist Confederacy Party that tried to overthrow the government. That is the agitprop that is being pushed by the left. And so the venue next week and going forward, and this is where leadership from McCarthy and, frankly, McConnell, if they want to secure control of the House and Senate, respectively, is going to be important, is to launch a frontal assault on that lie. Frontal assault on that lie. Going back to Tobin. The minority of those who came to support Trump who violated the law, as opposed to merely exercising their right to protest, like those who took part in the quote-unquote mostly peaceful BLM protest, those who violated the law deserve severe punishment. But their conduct cannot be treated as something that can discredit everyone who applauded Trump that day, January 6th, or wish for a different outcome last November. And that's what they're doing. This is not that deep in terms of understanding what they're doing and understanding what is right and proper, but you have to defend the position. You have to under, you, you, you have to recognize what they're doing and recognize the response it demands. Tobin concluding, one needn't think well of Trump's post-election conduct or condone all the exaggerated claims of fraud he promoted to understand that transforming a protest, no matter how ill-considered, into a rebellion is an act of political mischief aimed at discrediting legitimate opposition not a defense of the Constitution. If Republicans fail to refute these false charges, they will be paying the political price for handling the Democrats, for, excuse me, for handing the Democrats that bloody shirt with which to assail them for many election cycles to come. Uh, The Republican Party and its leadership, as well as at the grassroots level, needs to get its uh, act together and uh, stop... Uh, running down every rabbit hole that the left digs and focus on sort of the big play that is being made here. And Jonathan Tobin uh, outlined it nicely, as did I, of course. This is Daniel. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the show continuing uh, the discussion we were having before the break about impeachment this is just so important so i want to stick on it i mentioned adam kinzinger a republican from my home state of illinois the ex-urban part of the state, ex-urban, just outside of Chicago, down to central Illinois, uh, a Republican district. And uh, Kinzinger is one of those, uh, like Liz Cheney, less profile, but uh, one of those who has been uh, prosecuting the case happily 
against Trump happily on cable news channels and uh, other forums where he can get cheap harumphs by doing the bidding of the left. And so his uh, latest star turn was on The View, where he had to deal with those uh, real probing questions from Whoopi and Joy, for goodness sakes. Uh, It's disgraceful, but it's important to point out. Important to point out. And, uh, you know, you're always going to have uh, rogues and parties. You know, you're always going to have differences of opinion. And that's fine. But I think when you start to really do uh, the uh, yeoman's work for pushing the left's agitprop, your political opponent's agitprop, about your own voters, including in your district, and you try to paper it over, paper over what you're doing, wittingly or unwittingly, you know, by essentially implying how courageous you're being, willing to put my political career on the line to say what I know to be true. Uh, it becomes uh, difficult to countenance. Kinzinger on The View. Congressman, you were the first Republican in Congress to come out and call for President Trump to be removed from office after the Capitol attack, either through the 25th Amendment or with a second impeachment, calling him unfit and unwell. What have these past few weeks been like for you in terms of any backlash you faced? Well, there's been backlash. You know, it's it's yeah, within the party base, there's there's some, of course, you know, as as we'd expect. There's also been a whole lot of outpouring from people that, uh, you know, just said thanks for saying it. Right. Um, I've heard it even among some of my colleagues. Thanks for speaking up. You know, and what it comes down to is maybe there's backlash, maybe there's not. But, you know, putting your career on the line when we're going out and asking young people to be willing to fight and die to defend this country. You know, being willing to give your career up to defend that same cause, that fidelity to the Constitution is a small price to pay. Yeah, uh, it's uh, the false nobility is really a a big price to pay in terms of having to listen to that. Uh, And uh, again, going back to the Jonathan Tobin piece I was referencing uh, before the break. What Trump's opponents have done is to launch a campaign that seeks to treat the insurrection in quotations as not just the fitting culmination of the Trump administration, but the prism through which to view the Republican Party as disloyal, authoritarian, and violent. By this means, all those members of the House and Senate who voted to challenge the Electoral College results can be labeled as accessories to insurrection. By painting with such a broad brush, the same can also be retroactively applied to those who raise questions about the election results, even if they opposed the January 6th challenge in Congress, for example, Rand Paul. Inflating the events of January 6th into an insurrection involves transforming the few hundred rioters into a full-fledged domestic terrorism conspiracy, even if there's little evidence to back up that charge. And that's what Kinzinger is actually furthering with uh, his comments. And Kinzinger uh, went on to you know, do the bidding of those who will raise his profile and probably help him raise money for his sort of Lincoln Project 2.0 pack uh, with the similarly euphemistic name Country First, the Lincoln Project, the vile uh, members of the Lincoln Project, starting with John Weaver, but not limited to him, um, invoking Lincoln, Adam Kinzinger, Country First. 
uh, Kinzinger on Marjorie Taylor Greene taking the bait once again, doing the left's bidding once again. Why don't they just come out and say, get her off? She's an outraged. She's an outrage. And she is, in fact, a cancer on the GOP. And we're better than that. Why don't they just come out and say that? Yeah, I don't know the answer to that because I think that's what they should say. You know, and we're sitting here and debating removing Liz Cheney from her leadership post whose conservative credentials are unmatched, you know, because she voted her conscience. And then we're debating and kind of hem-hawing over what to do with, you know, Jewish space laser conspiracies and and uh, Sandy Hook truthers and 9-11 truthers. You know, that's really what the, the battle for the heart and soul of the party is. It actually isn't because uh, nobody is defending Marjorie Taylor Greene's uh, ridiculous comments. So there is no battle over that. That's a fake battle. That's a false flag. Oh, and by the way, she's an outrage. Uh, you know, I know Joy Behar has nothing but the best interests of the Republican Party in mind. It's so charitable of her to provide that advice and counsel that Adam Kinzinger laps up like a like a puppy dog. Uh, Adam Kinzinger, though, on she's an outrage. She's an embarrassment. This is uh, Adam Kinzinger from his uh, launch video for Country First, his PAC, just the other day, just a couple of days ago. Republicans must say enough is enough. It's time to unplug the outrage machine, reject the politics of personality and cast. Oh, it's time to unplug the outrage machine, except when you want to plug it in and use it on The View. Mm hmm. We'll see. Uh, I think Kevin McCarthy is uh, navigating this a lot better than Adam Kinzinger is in terms of uh, long term direction of the party and, frankly, uh, the individual viability, political viability of the two, for example. But we'll see. Oh, by the way, here's some other, you know, context that's important. You know, it's not like the um, Democrat Socialist Party doesn't have their problems, too. Doesn't have their um those that uh, are um, squawking about the direction of the party. And it's fine to squawk about the direction of the party. I've done it all the time, both with respect to the national party, with respect to the local party. As I said, I think the line is when you flip to the other side and you're wittingly or unwittingly advancing the agitprop of the of your political opponents undermining your party, which is what I'm saying Ken, Kinzinger is doing. So there is a standard here. Uh, Marcy Kaptur, who is the uh, longest-serving female in Congress, she's a Democrat from Ohio. She's frustrated by her party's disposition towards blue-collar families like those she represents in Ohio. They just can't understand. They can't understand a family that sticks together because that's what they have. Their loved ones are what they have. Their little town, their home, as humble as it is, that's what they have. It's been very hard for regions like mine, which have had great economic attrition, to get fair standing, in my opinion. She feels like a minority within her party, she said. Several of my colleagues who are in the top ranks have said to me, you know, we don't understand your part of the country. And they're very genuine. You can't understand what you haven't been a part of. Well, yeah, you also uh, are not going to understand something you don't attempt to understand, something that you're not interested in understanding people that you uh, just categorize as deplorables and dismiss with respect to their concerns or their standings as uh, God-fearing Americans. Mm -hmm. People that need to be steamrolled over so the brave new world can be ushered in. Well, that's the other part of it that, of course, Representative Kaptur isn't going to 
say, but I'm happy to translate. This is Dan Proud. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. I want to tackle the issue of the politics of vaccination prioritization. Uh, This is in Illinois, my home state, and uh, we've seen this stories like the one I'm about to share anecdotes in California, which is why Gavin Newsom is under so much pressure. Part of why he's under so much pressure had to turn over their vaccination program to Blue Shield. Right. Uh, and New York and elsewhere. All the real high functioning blue states with them socialist governors. But I digress. My healthy this is from a friend of mine, my healthy 35 year old wife who worked for Illinois Department of Public Health was offered to get a vaccine shot today. She turned it down. But all of her co-workers who are all under 50 are getting it. In the meantime, his wife's 82-year-old grandmother can't even get scheduled. Uh, in uh, an adjacent county, prioritizing everyone over 65 or someone who works in a school for their available shots. We see in Maryland that uh, despite private schools being open and public schools not, Montgomery County, Maryland, uh, you have vaccinations being prioritized for public school teachers over private school teachers well, they're all teachers they're all teaching kids you have in illinois going back to illinois always a good example of the bad example the governor pronouncing that uh, legislators state legislators will be able to skip the line because we need an effective functioning state government which is a punchline on many levels in this state but i i won't bother uh so these uh Jumping the line, these exceptions based on designations of essential uh, versus just doing a prioritization based on the risk threat level. Make sense to help us with uh, that question. Please to be joined again by Alex Berezow, vice president of scientific communications at the American Council on Science and Health, Ph.D. microbiologist and columnist for USA Today. Alex, thanks for being with us. Hey, thanks again, Dan. So uh, teachers, politicians, teachers in public schools, but not private schools. Oh, we also have to consider race. Uh, Shouldn't we just do vaccinations based on age since we know the threat level increases exponentially as you go up age demographics? Well, that's that's exactly what I think. Um, the, The idea that we can. Uh, use make political decisions to decide who should get a vaccine and who shouldn't. What well, it's ridiculous. That's why we're in the mess that we're in. We're we're seeing all these different uh, interest groups trying to jockey for a vaccine. And you're correct. Really, the best predictor of what you're going to have how you're going to uh, fare if you get coronavirus is your age. So this should be based on age. And uh, how many masks should we be wearing today? And how loudly can I cheer during the Super Bowl on Sunday? Well, you know, if you if you want to be completely safe, you probably should just hide in the closet and not even watch TV. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I hear. I mean, the, the, these these sort of micro announcements, micromanaging announcements from the CDC and and uh, and other you know men and women of reputed science and and data. Uh, is that helpful? Is that advancing the flag? 
well, I, I'm always in favor of coordinated uh, government messaging in a time of confusion. That that was one of the uh, main gripes I had with the Trump administration was that the, we never got any clear guidance on anything. Trump can change his mind sometime in the same day. Uh, so I, I'm I'm better with a coordinated message coming from the Biden administration. But I, I I would agree with you that micromanaging people's lives, as they're trying to do out here in Washington State, where I live, uh, it, it backfires because people are getting tired of it. Yeah, I mean, it can be coordinated, but then you also have to address the substance of it. I mean, and, and you have uh, 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 Michael Osterholm, uh, Epidemiology University of Minnesota, seeming to disagree with Tony on, on Meet the Press this week, seeming to disagree with Tony Fauci, who, you know, hey, you know, if uh, if, if two masks uh, pro- might make you might make you safer, if you want to do two masks to make yourself feel better, do two masks. So why not three? Why not four? Alstrom saying, well, yeah, but if the masks are not fitted properly, you could actually do a lot more harm than good, even than more harm than just wearing one mask that's not fitted properly. I mean, so so the confusion continues. Yeah, and and that's that's kind of what uh, what we get when we're when we're giving out advice that's mostly based on um, speculation and political considerations. And so, yeah, it, it's it's not surprising that we continue to have mixed messages. Uh, when we come back with uh, Alex Barras, I want to uh, talk about um, uh, the uh, judiciousness of shutting down borders. Uh, you know, Trump was going to start opening up international travel and Joe Biden interceded to to stop that, as well as uh, an interesting question he poses. Why is an anti-vaxxer Robert F. Kennedy Jr. banned from social media platforms? Gosh, I wonder if that has something to do with his last name. More with Alex Berezow, Vice President of Scientific Communications at the American Council on Science and Health, Ph.D. microbiologist and columnist for USA Today. We'll be right back. The more you'll know, this is is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Alex Barazow, Vice President of Scientific Communications at the American Council on Science and Health, Ph.D. microbiologist and columnist for USA Today and uh, Alex, uh, you append a piece about uh, shutting down America's borders, uh, you know, preventing uh, people from traveling in from Europe and, and other places. Um, this was as President Trump was uh, moving towards reopening some of those, uh, some of that travel on his way out the door. Um, what about uh, shutting down international travel as the means to slow the spread? Well, it didn't work the first time, so I, I don't know why we're going to do it again. The, the justification now is that, well, we've got these more uh, more contagious variants of the virus that are spreading. We want to prevent that from coming into the country. What's well, already here? It really doesn't matter now. The virus is already here. And here's the other thing that, that people are not understanding. Viruses evolve, and they can evolve quickly. And so the idea that all we have to do is just close our borders and, and we won't get a more contagious version of the virus in our country is false. The viruses are evolving all the time. 
In fact, a lot of scientists believe that these more contagious viruses evolved independently all over the world. And that's, that's probably what's happening. And so this is the next stage in the evolution of this virus, and uh, we just have to deal with it. The idea that we can hide, like uh, Australia, and, and, uh, and just shut all of our doors and pull up the drawbridges and hide from the world, it's, it's crazy. There was an interesting interview that Matt Ridley did of Paul Ewald, who is at the University of Louisville, um, and uh, talking about this issue of mutations. And um, Ewald's theory uh, is, well, number one, that evolution and adaptation should be taken into more account when trying to understand uh, viral mutations. Um, but he also suggests that some diseases are more lethal than others based on the mode of transmission. Infections you catch from coughs and sneezes, mostly mild. We get more than 200 different kinds of common cold viruses, and, the, the, and, and on the whole, none of them really puts you in, in bad, let alone kills you. Yet, for example, insect-borne diseases such as malaria, plague, yellow fever, waterborne diseases such as uh, cholera, typhoid, uh, are uh, quite content to kill you. So w- what about that, the, the mode of transmission? It's just sort of getting a better a working conception of a virus that spreads the way COVID does versus other viruses, and, and as you were trying to, to discuss, you know, uh, managing our expectations of mutation. Yeah, so there's this belief, and and it's not completely uh, known whether or not it's true, but but the conventional wisdom in in infectious disease microbiology for a long time has been as a virus becomes more contagious, it also becomes less lethal, and that there is an inverse relationship between the two, so that a virus that's extremely deadly is not usually all that contagious, whereas a virus that's very contagious is usually not all that deadly. That's you know, there's a lot of evidence to support it, but there's also evidence that contradicts it. So it's it's not completely sure whether or not that's true. I would tend to agree that respiratory viruses tend not to be all that lethal. But of course, the flu kills a few hundred thousand people every year, and that's a respiratory virus. And measles killed, uh, before we had the vaccine, it killed millions of people. So it was a respiratory virus. So there are exceptions to every rule. What I hope to see is that the coronavirus will evolve to become less lethal over time and will just join that panoply of uh, viruses that we call cold viruses, and it just becomes yet another circulating cold virus and and nowhere near as lethal it is right now. Uh, Speaking of the vaccines, you know, there have been these anecdotal stories of adverse reactions. There's also a lot of anecdotal stories about COVID that are way over-extrapolated. So I'm not in the business of over-extrapolating. I'm just relaying some of the anecdotes and, and the questions that people have about adverse reactions and whether or not there is um, the data gathering going on to provide any insight into some of the adverse reactions and, and our understanding of how and, and who should get the vaccine. So, for example, one woman tweeted that she had had uh, an incident of anaphylactic shock after a bee sting in her life, and she uh, apparently she uh, she uh, relayed that she shouldn't have taken the vaccine because it can induce anaphylactic shock, but she didn't know that, and the and she suggests that the person who administered or it or the government or the the pharma company should have known that, and that's the sort of advice and counsel that should be given. Just as we had the WHO last week send out an advisory about uh, pregnant women not taking the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines because they weren't part of the clinical trials. Um, what, what about how we're managing information about the vaccines and dealing with legitimate questions people have about stories of adverse reactions? Yeah, so that, that's a great question. And th- there's a couple of things that need to be considered. The, the first is that uh, 
clinical trials are, uh, you know, they're done with the purpose of collecting as much information as we can before we just dis- before we distribute these vaccines to millions of people. That doesn't mean that scientists stop collecting data. Once the vaccine goes out to the public, we're still watching. We're still waiting to see what happens. And they kind of they call this phase four. Uh, but, but basically, once once a drug or a vaccine goes out to the market, that you know, scientists are still collecting data on it. So yeah, there there are going to be people monitoring whether or not there's anaphylactic reactions, whether or not uh, people are, are getting sick from this vaccine. Uh, it, it appears that those are rare cases and that the vast majority of people just have a normal reaction to a vaccine, which is a sore arm, which means the vaccine's working. And uh, you have to look at the costs and benefits of putting out the vaccine versus not putting out the vaccine. And I think that the case is pretty clear that a vaccine is preferable to getting the coronavirus. Uh, speaking of vaccines, uh, you wrote about uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who is a, uh, a very public anti-vaxxer who has some profile. And uh, based on the uh, standard uh, for censoring misinformation, uh, why is Robert F. Kennedy still ubiquitous on social media? Where are our big tech minders when we need them? Yeah, no, I, I, I just don't think that that big tech and the social media world is actually furious about stopping misinformation, because if they are, uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is a slam dunk for someone who has no business uh, promoting uh, anti-vaccine propaganda, and yet he does it all the time. See, if people listen to him, they'll die, right? period. Uh, he's against the measles vaccine. He's against the HPV vaccine that prevents cancer, prevents probably prevents throat cancer, prevents cervical cancer for sure in women. He he, he blames all these things for causing Alzheimer's and dementia and obesity, like every disease under the sun he blames on vaccines. And so he is probably uh, the greatest scourge on public health uh, in the United States, easily. And yet he's still on social media spouting his nonsense. Um, I don't get it. Hmm. Uh, Alex Barazow, Vice President of Scientific Communications at the American Council on Science and Health, a Ph.D. microbiologist and columnist for USA Today. Alex, thanks for being with us again. Appreciate it. Always my pleasure, Dan. Thanks a lot. Take care. danproftshow.com Welcome back to the show. Well, the Biden Justice Department is certainly certainly uh, celebrating uh, Black Lives Matter week in uh, school by um, dismissing a suit that was brought against Yale University per their racist admissions policies that was brought last year by the Trump administration justice department. The spokesman for Yale was gratified by the DOJ's decision. Our admissions process has allowed Yale college to assemble an unparalleled student body, which is distinguished by its academic excellence and diversity. Mm -hmm. Uh, Joe Biden's administration making racial equity, not equality, equity, not unity, conformity, not equality, equity, a top priority. Equity is outcome. Equality is opportunity. Translating for you again there so you can translate for others. In the press release that the Department of Justice put out announcing this case last year, remember there was a 
case that was filed by Asian American students against Harvard as well. Dismissed. Uh, the Justice Department found the following. Yale discriminates based on race and national origin in its undergraduate admissions, the admissions process, and that race is the determinative factor in hundreds of admissions decisions each year. For the great majority of applicants, Asians, Americans, and whites have only one-eighth to one-fourth of the likelihood of admission as African-American applicants with comparable academic credentials. Yale rejects scores of Asian-American and white applicants each year based on their race, whom it would otherwise admit. And this runs afoul, if true, which it is, of Title VI of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Yale, by the way, receives more than half a billion dollars annually in federal funds. So the federal government's reach here and the the relevance of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. So we're going to be more race obsessed and that's going to lead to a more that's going to generate more racial harmony. We're going to confer benefits and impose responsibilities based on race. And that is going to bring the country together. Equity leads to unity. Oh, that's the proposition of the Biden administration, a proposition that was rejected by Martin Luther King, that was rejected by Frederick Douglass 100 years before him, that's rejected by good sense, that's rejected by the ideals, even though they clearly were not always lived up to, of this country's founding. You have to make a choice here. Either this is going to be a colorblind society or you're going to be with the crowd that says meritocracy is white supremacy. They that they use as sort of a smokescreen to advance their interests in spite of the merits. Boy, the divide growing wider with each passing day. And uh, as we talked about with, I mean, any number of scholars <laughs> walking through the annals of history, including uh, Gad Saad yesterday, you're pushing the country into a very divisive and dangerously divisive place. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Follow us at uh, danproftshow.com, at Dan Proft, and at Dan Proft Show on social media. When the proverbial water recedes and the weather breaks, what will be left of cities like Chicago and New York and uh, so many other big cities around the country as well that don't have the uh, inclement weather during the winter to deal with but have the same destruction wrought by, I would argue, almost exclusively the policy choices that were made in response to the pandemic. Thinking about big systems that very few people are using at present, as we've discussed. In Chicago, it's Metro and the L, but it's public transportation in big cities around the country. The expense, the number of people employed by those big systems. How do big cities recover, right-size, reimagine themselves after all that has been wrought and will have been wrought by the other side of the pandemic when herd immunity is achieved perhaps this summer? For uh, some help in thinking about that, 
Pleased to be joined again by Chuck Marone. He's the founder and president of StrongTowns.org and the author of Strong Towns, A Bottom-Up Revolution to Rebuild American Prosperity. Chuck, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. So, I mean, you, you've uh, done such, and your organization has done such interesting work over many years thinking about uh, how cities and towns operate at the local level, the way they use scarce resources, the investments they make, the gambits they take. I mean, this is really a, a watershed moment, perhaps, in American history for big city America. And so I assume you've been doing a lot of thinking about things like mass transit in places like Chicago and New York and L.A. and what that looks like coming out of this. There's a lot of dynamism in our cities. There's a lot going on. A lot of that was very active, but it was active on this chassis of insolvency. You know, we were having difficulty running our transit systems uh, prior to the pandemic. We were having difficulty maintaining our streets prior to the pandemic. In Illinois, your financial state, not only of the city, but of the state itself, is a complete basket case. You know, this is giving you no, no fallback position. That's a pretty tenuous way to live. And so, yeah, the pandemic and its impacts financially on cities has been huge. And I think the long-term consequences of shifts in living patterns, shifts in preferability, these are unknowns, but they're unknowns that I think pose huge challenges to cities that don't have a lot of capacity to adapt right now. So if you're a city planner or you're advising a big city mayor and you see, for example, 20% of Manhattan disappear over the last six months, perhaps no indication that uh, many of those people will be coming back. And obviously the same flight has been happening places like Chicago and L.A. too, which is why all three of those states are going to lose members of Congress after this census. What are you advising them? What are you saying? What, here's at least what we need to think about. What are we going to do about big transit systems? What are we going to do about maintenance of infrastructure? What are we going to do about uh, the level of uh, property taxation and, by contrast, the spending on schools, regardless of how they're sort of differently organized in some of the big cities? What, what are we going to do about unfunded pension liabilities, which is a, a problem throughout a big city America and, frankly, a lot of small town America, too? How do you start uh, getting people to confront this sort of new fiscal reality that they had put off this long? And maybe they'll be able to put off a little bit longer with sort of funny money from the feds, but not much beyond that. Right. There's really, in terms of advice, you know, the advice was decades ago. Uh, now it's just dealing with the consequences, right? There's sense of austerity is always talked about as, well, we, we shouldn't do austerity because, you know, it's bad for growth or it's bad for the economy. Austerity is generally not a choice. You know, austerity is a consequence of past actions. And in a lot of ways, yes, we have some places we can invest and some places that we should be disinvesting from. And we have some policies that we should change and, and things we should do differently. But the reality is, is that a lot of this is going to be forced on us. You know, the, resolving the pension crisis is going to be forced upon us. It, it's not like we have an option to deal with this or not. We're going to have to. I'm not worried about Chicago and you know Manhattan losing population. There's enough people that want to live in these places. But I think the change will be the, the kind of population, right? Both of these cities, I mean, Chicago has floated on kind of this froth of financialization and affluence. And a lot of those people have decamped, you know, for tax reasons, for quality of life reasons, for what they perceive as their health or safety reasons. There's a lot of people who will backfill those, but they will be people who are poorer. They'll be people who, you know, are less part of that transaction economy. In some ways that might be good. I mean, I, I feel like 
you know, the big problem our cities have is not a lack of access to capital, but sometimes like crazy capital in ways. But it's also going to be tough because it's going to force us to confront a lot of these insolvencies that we've just been able to paper over. With respect to so the areas that, you know, as you say, now we're in the in the, the period of dealing with the consequences. We're not really in a position of being strategic thinkers other than in dealing with the consequences. So, for example, these big cities, they're going to have to confront the reality that their headcount at the city level, at the school district level is too high. The personnel costs are too high and they're going to need to shrink the personnel costs and, frankly, by inference the number of people who work in city and county and school district government is that a fair statement yeah i think cities in general are going to have to tighten up their shit and i think we i hate to use like these buzzwords because you know they've been used for decades but you know in in sense of reimagining local government as something that is less hierarchical and less silos and hierarchies and and kind of a, a u.s military model of operation we have different departments. I think we're going to have to really start focusing on geographic teams. How do we serve neighborhoods? And how do we do that with a staff that is, is quite frankly, leaner and more agile? Just to make that concrete, so you're, th- yeah, you're yeah. talking about things like there's 10 communities that are adjacent to one another in a county. Not all 10 of them need a public library. You can share one or two public libraries. Not all 10 of them need a public swimming pool, things like this. Not, not all 10 of them need their own fire department and uh, department staff. That, that, is that what you mean when you talk about regional sharing? In some ways, you know, you can focus on the library thing for a second. I think libraries are really important. And in fact, in my neighborhood, uh, we have like four libraries, but they're the small little libraries. They're not the $50 million thing that you build. I, I think what we're going to need to do is we're going to need to figure out how to provide these services in a lighter touch. You know, a, a library is a really important thing because we can get people access to information, access to literature. You know, libraries are ways people grow their way out of, out of poverty and, and, and into prosperity. How do we make those things happen on a more distributed, lower cost kind of scale, as opposed to everybody get the $50 million library with the big parking lot, you know, and all that, which is how we tend to approach these things. Well, but but the problem is, I mean, it's just sort of like this is like public choice theory one on one. The problem is this is how it should happen. But the incentives are to build Taj Mahal's. Yeah, well, and the incentives largely come from this fact that we can access capital. I mean, that when I say frothy, you're really looking at a state in Illinois that is completely insolvent. I mean, your, your bond rating is horrible. It, it, the state pays their debts and IOUs. The idea that the state or the city, which is in a similar position, would be investing in these large kind of build it and they will come transformative projects. I, I get the theory and I get you know what people are hoping to do, but we have a long track record of that not working, not paying off. It's a little bit like you know the big company that is insolvent and you go in and you say, well, we're going to launch three new product lines. No, you know what we're going to do? We're going to tighten up the shift. We're going to look at what we do. We're going to figure out how to do it better. And we're going to figure out how to do it with fewer people. And we're going to focus on the core services that we need to provide and do those exceptionally well. That, that's what cities need to do right now. And uh, again, cornerstones of strong towns, strong K through 12 systems. That's what attracts families, strong healthcare infrastructure, strong infrastructure uh, in, in terms of transportation, which was all, always the calling card for, for example, Chicago, the Midwest or New York on the eastern seaboard, L.A. on the West Coast. You know how, how that is 
perhaps how the, the grandiose visions of what those systems are uh, were going to look like once upon a time also need to be recast. There's no doubt. And, you know, I think right now today there's a, there's a big talk of places like Austin and Miami, the places now that are on the receiving end of, of, of people. You said in that comment, that question, you know, this is how we attract people. I, I think for Chicago, and I, I feel like for, you know, Minneapolis, from, from my hometown uh, here in, in, in central Minnesota, the idea needs to be less about what do we do to make ourselves attractive to people who aren't here now, and w- instead be what do we do to actually serve the people that are here in front of us that are paying the taxes? What, right. what do we do to make their lives better and easier and more functional? And, I think if we focus more on that, if, if that was our obsession, we actually find people wanting to move to our place. Like it wouldn't be a problem attracting people. Uh, we just, you know, I, I, I think get too obsessed with the, the flow in a sense, like, oh, these people moving to Miami, how do we get them back? Well, that's the wrong question. How do we take care of what we've got? That that's really should be the obsession right now. Chuck Marone, founder and president of StrongTowns.org, author of Strong Towns, A Bottom-Up Revolution to Rebuild American Prosperity. Chuck, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thank you. Really appreciate it. Take care. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the show hypocrisy is attendant to their status that's one of the ways in which they separate themselves from the hoi polloi talking about the champagne socialists, the leftist elites. I'm talking about Biden climate czar John Kerry, who was queried about uh, taking a private jet over to Iceland to receive an award from some environmental outfit. If you offset your carbon, it's the only choice for somebody like me who is traveling the world to win this battle. Uh, I negotiated the Paris Accords uh, for the United States. I've been involved in this fight for years. I negotiated with President Xi to bring President Xi to the table so we could get Paris. And uh, I believe the time it takes me to get somewhere, I can't sail across the ocean. I have to fly to meet with people and get things done. But what I'm doing almost full time is working to win the battle of climate change. And in the end, uh, if I offset and contribute my life to do this, uh, I'm not going to be put on the defensive. No, of course not. Sale. I remember John Kerry when he was running for president, windsurfing off the coast of Boston, if I recall correctly. So maybe you could windsurf over there. No, of course not. What does that offsetting look like, by the way? So give me the carbon footprint for the private jet ride over to Iceland and then how specifically you're offsetting it. I, I love like follow up. Give me the details, the, the follow up on the details. That's what reporters always miss, because then it could have really been more entertaining. For more on all this, we're pleased to be joined by Mark Mills, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, author of several reports, including Mines, Minerals and Green Energy, a reality check and the new energy economy and exercise in magical thinking. Mark, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. That's some, a heck of an intro. Yeah, well, so, so, I mean, someone like John Kerry, obviously, the need to uh, monitor their footprint with great detail is beside the point. He's he's devoted his life to this war against the climate. Yeah. 
I'll just stipulate that politicians of both stripes can do uh, a lot to help us all understand there's a certain amount of arrogance and uh, hypocrisy in in the political world. I'm trying hard in my public life to avoid those issues and point to the reality, that's why I call the paper a reality check, of what it is that will actually happen for most of us in the real world, no matter what the politicians say, no matter what executive orders get signed. So the virtue signaling of the Paris Accord, we know is the nations that signed it are virtue signaling, because the pledge that they all made, which is almost 10 years old now, we know for a fact that the pledge is, quote, not enough. But even then, None of the nations are meeting their pledges. Two nations of the sort of 100-plus that signed the accord have met their pledges to shift their behavior. It's Gambia and Morocco. Well, why can't the United States be more like Gambia and Morocco, Mark? Here's the irony. If what you care about the most is carbon dioxide emissions, the United States is, in fact, the only nation that's reduced its carbon dioxide emissions over the last uh, decade or two. And that's because fracking has made natural gas so cheap it got cheaper than the cheapest fuel in the world, which is coal. So the United States has been shifting from coal-fired power plants to natural gas-fired power plants. And this has had a, uh, a carbon dioxide emissions reduction that's been epic in the United States. But what's been far more important, because that's not why the shift happened. It happened because of economics. It's that the United States' astonishing production of natural gas directly caused the world price for natural gas to decline by something like two-and-a-half-fold which has benefited consumers of everybody's gas over the entire planet. I mean, it's been an astonishing gift to the world. Same is true for oil, by the way. The U.S. increasing its oil production has caused the world's oil prices to moderate and even collapse. Oil prices, as you probably know, last year briefly went negative on paper uh, because of of the demand destruction. It's also because of, of supply overhang from the United States. That kind of reality has to be calibrated how the world really operates. And then you add to that, which was sort of the subject of the sort of focal point of my paper, is if you look at, we'll use the iconic green vehicle, you know, electric car, Tesla, there's going to be more electric cars in the future. But there's two facts that we should keep in mind. Even if we get a massive increase in the number of electric cars on the road, that will only replace 10% of the world's oil. And it will have unintended consequence of stimulating the biggest increase in mining that the world has ever seen to make all the batteries for those cars. Because a single battery, an electric car, which weighs 1,000 pounds, uh, requires mining and processing somewhere 500,000 pounds of materials per car. Uh, the, that uh, Anthony Blinken, I think, just reiterated the position of the uh, Trump Pompeo team, uh, administration, which was uh, greatest threat to the United States and to freedom around the world, China. So now we're going to make China instrumental in terms of delivery of our our uh, energy uh, capacity. Wonderful. Somebody else who has uh, resurfaced, and I'm real excited about it, is uh, Michael Mann. Michael Mann, the uh, climate scientist who uh, came up with the uh, infamous hockey stick graph uh, of charting temperatures on the Earth over several hundred years. That was uh, proven to be a fraud. Uh, If you remember, I'm sure you do, Mark, uh, a great interview that Tim Ball gave about 10 years ago where he said Michael Mann, who is a professor at Penn State, Michael Mann deserves to be in the state Penn, not Penn State, for the fraud that he committed with respect to his science, the underlying basis for which he would never disclose, which, of course, runs a bit afoul of academic standards, peer review, and so forth. Anyway, he's back with an op-ed about how wonderful this uh, labeling of climate change a maximum threat by the Biden administration is. He writes, while no war analogy 
is ever perfect. The Marshall Plan isn't a bad one for characterizing what a post-war battlefield may look like, also known as the European Recovery Program. So that was $15 billion in assistance to finance yeah. recovery after World War II. Just as the United States provided economic assistance to help Western European countries heal, man writes, we must help individuals, companies, and industries transition off fossil fuels towards a clean energy future. So we need a Marshall Plan for old energy industries to transition to new energy industries. What do you think? Here's the inconvenient fact, and let's stick with electric cars and Teslas. If we replace an internal combustion engine in America with electric vehicle, what we've done, as I pointed out, is de facto exported carbon dioxide emissions because the materials that are used to make that battery or make its components are fabricated elsewhere, which involves using energy elsewhere. If the materials are made in China, and most of them are, it involves a grid that's two-thirds coal-fired and, and the combustion of natural gas and oil as well in that country. If you do the accounting, which is counting the emissions that you create to make the battery, let's say in China, against the emissions you eliminate but not burning oil in America somewhere, you have to balance it out. I mean, it's sort of obvious once you state it. The question you have to ask is, what does the balance look like? And there have been serious studies on this. Uh, Europeans have looked at it because they figured this out. And, and bottom line is this, that you can not only wipe out, say, a third to half of all the emissions you think you're saving, but depending on where you drive the car and where the batteries, are, in fact, are made overseas, you can wipe out all the emissions savings that you thought you were creating by driving the electric car. So this kind of you know, battlefield analogy requires understanding what the entire field looks like, and that's not what's going on. And so what, in your assessment, is the uh, extent of the threat of climate change? It is actually impossible to do what people are, are claiming. We're not going to get to net zero. It's not going to happen. Nothing that we're talking about results in that outcome in any time frames that have any meaning, not, not even by 2050. That's only 30 years from now. Well, AO, where, where there's an AOC, there's a way, is what I always say, Mark. <laughs> Mark Mill, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, author of several reports, including Mine, Minerals, and Green Energy, A Reality Check, and The New Energy Economy, An Exercise in Magical Thinking. Uh, also check out his uh, recent piece, Ideas for the New Administration on Energy, again over at the Manhattan Institute. Mark, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. In the purpose of uh, framing our uh, discussion with our next guest, I want to go back to this uh, conversation we had earlier in the week with Bob Muzikowski, the founder of Catholic Hope Academy Independent Christian School on the west side of Chicago. His experience uh, being open, having a school day running, full school day running since last fall, and the experience of some people he talked to, other high schools, Catholic high schools on the south side of Chicago, uh, as compared to the experience and the story with respect to the Chicago public school system, which, of course, has been a national story for their recalcitrance, to be polite, in getting back to the classroom. Here's Muzikowski. We're a high school, Chicago Academy, uh, independent, non-denominational Christian high school. We had about 40 kids transfer in from public schools when they found out they weren't going to open. So in that period, we've had seven students test positive. One was affected, was a night in the hospital. All the others were back as soon as they were allowed to. We've had nine staff get it. 
One of them was my daughter. Instead of running five miles a day, she ran seven <laughs> miles a day. And so we had one one staff member affected, though, where she was out for a couple of weeks and that was really hurting. But that's uh, we're 287. I actually visited Marist High School, which has 1,200 students on the south side, and had uh, dinner with the principal there, reviewed their new signs up. And they've been open the whole time. They do half in the morning, half in the afternoon. So I think... My opinion with CPS is you got every principal has at least a master's or a PhD. They should have let every principal run their show. They know their students the best. They know their families the best. Why would you not let your principals run their own show for each school? Why would you not let your principals run their own show? Hmm. Uh, by the way, just as a background, Mazakowski uh, and the performance of Chicago Hope Academy for the students in his charge, 90% poor, black. Our kids are thriving. Last year, we had two Yales, Columbia, Brown. We have a kid at Princeton, Notre Dame, University of Chicago, and a bunch of the military, which we're super proud of. But we know where everybody's going when they walk across the stage. And again, just to repeat, west side of the city, 90% low income, uh, mostly yeah. minority kids, right? Yeah, mostly black. My own kids were the first white kids in the school. and One of them's a principal now. I went to Harvard. Uh, Mazakowski's also fostered black children. And here's the results he suggests CPS is generating from the position the Chicago Teachers Union has taken. Do you think the kids on the west side and the south side are really paying attention on Zoom when it's loud in the background and your, your mom's getting high? I mean, really, it's ridiculous to think that. And to think that all these juniors and seniors and the low-income south side minority kids and west side, do you think they've been told they don't have to go to school? Do you think they're going to come back for their senior year at 19? I mean, you just created 30,000 gang bangers because you're too lazy to open and figure it out. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Ramesh Ponaru, Senior Editor for National Review, columnist for Bloomberg Opinion and a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Ramesh, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Glad to be on. The question that he poses, uh, Bob Mazakowski, in that first bite where he says, uh, you know, these principals, the master's degrees, PhDs, why wouldn't you let the principals run their own show? They, they know the show at their school. And uh, in your piece in Bloomberg, you explain why. That's not the case is because and this is something that it, it baffles me that it mystifies people to this day. There's a reason why Chicago schools, San Francisco schools, Fairfax County schools uh, are not open. And it's not because that they don't understand what they could be doing. They don't understand what people say. Well, this is a common sense thing to do or this is a way to to achieve what I want you to achieve. The system is set up very well for them and they're perpetuating a system that serves them very well, even if it doesn't serve their families particularly well. That's right. I think that the untold part of the story here is the way different types of schools respond to incentives and the way different kinds of schools are set up to be more or less responsive to parents. Because parents, you know, look, parents want their kids to be educated. Of course, they don't want their kids to get sick. They don't want to get sick from their kids. So they've got incentives to be concerned about both sides of this picture. And when you look across this whole country, you'll see private and parochial schools are overwhelmingly, majority of them are in-person instruction. That's not the case for public schools. I don't see any way to explain that except that the private and the parochial schools are more responsive to parents. They need the parents to, uh, to be happy, and the parents aren't going to give them money unless they are offering that kind of instruction that they think is best for their kids. Public schools, it's a different story. They get funding from the government even if they have 
made the parents disappointed or frustrated or angry. The parents can only indirectly, through politics, if they're lucky, over time, make a difference. So there's just not that accountability there. Uh, when we uh, come back with uh, Ramesh, I want to ask him if he thinks that we're at a potentially a watershed moment here with how we do K-12 through education because of the volatility within the system that has been generated by the response to the pandemic. More with Ramesh Panaru, Senior Editor for National Review, Bloomberg Opinion Columnist, Visiting Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, right after this. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is, this is the Dan Proft Show. <laughs> back to the program. We're speaking with Ramesh Panaru, Senior Editor for National Review, columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and he's uh, penned a, a piece recently about uh, the case for more school choice and how COVID is helping to make that case. And as uh, we uh, you were talking about before the break, you, you're seeing some mobility from uh, within the system, and mainly from public to private, at least in some cities. And I wonder if... Um, this is a moment where we can re- rethink how we do K through 12 education altogether or whether, you know, that sort of rethinking is going to be very uneven. It will be locality by locality. Well, I think that this is a great opportunity for rethinking, um, particularly if people are active in making the case that, you know, the things that some of us on the right, some of us conservatives and libertarians have been saying for years about the negative influence of teachers' unions and the unresponsiveness of the public school system as currently configured, we were right. And this, is, this crisis is showing that to us in a tragic and unmistakable way. So we ought to, you know, and we ought to be talking about that and we ought to be talking about giving parents more choices as a result of this. I do think that that message is going to land on receptive ears. Now, it may not even be a majority of people who come around on this, but keep in mind, we've only got about 10% of American school kids who are in private or parochial schools. Even if just a fraction of the people who've been homeschooling, essentially, or who have switched into private and parochial schools stay there, that could be a huge difference in terms of percentages, in terms of how many people are in those non-government schools, yes. or how many people are in more, or in more flexible public schools, charter schools, for example. You know, the other thing about this, and I don't know that there's great research on it yet, it's probably too early, but how long the tail will be on these policies. Uh, you know, Bob Mazakowski, we played before the break from Chicago Hope Academy, talking about uh, you just created 30,000 gangbangers in Chicago because you were too lazy to figure out how to open the schools and get kids back in school. And he talked about, you know, the, these kids that are not paying attention with their, on their quote-unquote, during their quote-unquote Zoom classes, and you think they're going to come back for their senior year at 19, then you're out of your mind. So now you're, you're pushing uh, kids who are, in less than stable familial situations out in the street in neighborhoods that are beset by violence and economic deprivation to begin with. 
And so uh, it has it, we talk a, a, a bit about the long tail it may have in terms of like anxiety issues and academic performance for those kids that are in more stable situations. What about the long tail it will have in big cities uh, when you're talking about uh, potentially exacerbating problems like Bob Mazakowski was talking about after a year where we saw this massive spike in, in homicides and violent crime and, and we're still seeing it here in January? There are so many dimensions to the effects that this lack of schooling is going to have, and they're nearly all bad. In addition to the things that you've been talking about, serious mental health problems are happening here, both because kids aren't getting the social interaction that they should be, and because there aren't other people keeping an eye on them or seeing them or having an influence on them. Um, and so, yeah, there's that. There's the economic effects. There's the obviously just the, the, the sheer education that is not going on. But, it, yeah, I'm afraid that these things are going to ramify for quite, quite a while. When uh, people see uh, the city of San Francisco suing, suing the uh, school district, as uh, was announced today, to reopen, they see uh, the mayor of Chicago jawboning back and forth with the head of the teachers union in Chicago. What should they understand about? Uh, wait, wait. I thought these politicians are from the same party, the same philosophy, the same, uh, and I, you know that they're allied. What What should they understand about what they're seeing? Are there any uh, you know uh, white knights in this story? Anybody wearing the the, the white hat in, in these stories? Well, I think. You have, what you have to think about is how extreme and unreasonable the teachers' unions had to be in order to provoke this kind of response from their coalition partners, right? No big city mayor is going to take on the teachers' unions lightly. Uh, I mean, we've seen the, what kind of effects that could have. You've seen that in your city. Um, but the, 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 the union's fundamental uh, imperative to just be self-serving at the expense of the public interest um, is, uh, it be- has become so radical that it's a problem even for these progressive liberal Democrats. Uh, but all the while, they cloak themselves and everything we're doing is uh, for the kids and everything that we're demanding is in the interest of safety and so they're they're really flying in formation with the rhetoric that's coming uh, f- from the National Democratic Party. And I, I think to, you know, parents and, and other people pay passing attention to this. You know, it, it all blends together. It all sounds the same. Well, that's what I'm hearing from politicians yeah. at, at the national level. That's what I hear from my teachers union. Safety, 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 safety. So, uh, you know, they're my kids teacher. I guess I got to uh, fall on their side of the divide. You know, it's funny because over the last two years, we've had these two parallel conversations where it tends to be Republicans who just sort of uncritically accept, you know, police unions are there for the for the public good and whatever they say is right. And it's been Democrats who are saying, no, no, lots of great police. Some of them say that, but they're self-serving institutions. We can't trust them always to be right. 
But those same people, when it comes to teachers' unions, they fall into the exact same habit of mind where they, they don't look at the actual interests, the actual incentives, what these organizations are, are designed to do. You know, teachers' unions, like any unions, they are going to operate in their own institutional interests. That's not always going to be in everybody else's interests. It's certainly not always going to be in school kids' interests. Ramesh Ponaru, Senior Editor for National Review, columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Ramesh, thanks for joining us as always. Appreciate it. You're welcome. All along the watchtower, kept the view. While all the women came and The podcast of the show at danproftshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And uh, earlier in the program, we talked about uh, upholding racist admissions policies at Yale. That's the one, another accomplishment of the Biden administration out of the gate. And, uh, Consistent with the purge, now it's coming to the military. Newly minted Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin calling on the armed services to conduct a 60-day stand-down on the issue of extremism in the military. This prompted by the January 6th rioting and violence at the Capitol. Go, go back to the beginning of the show, what, what, what I was talking about. The entire whole-of-government approach, whole-of-cultural uh, whole, whole approach by the left to turn everyone in everyone who was supportive of Trump into an accessory before, during or after the fact. So as to provide the basis for their sequestration or worse punishment generally. So the military, he was very clear, uh, said uh, Pentagon spokesman, John Kirby about, uh, SecDef Lloyd Austin, very clear that he wants commands to take the necessary time. And I didn't hear him be overly prescriptive about that, uh, to speak with troops about the scope of this problem and certainly to get a sense from them about what they're seeing at that level. The scope of the problem, extremism in the military. Sure. Uh, didn't was not overly prescriptive, right? Uh, not overly specific either, because why be specific? We know what you're looking for. Joe Biden was very clear in his directive to DNI. Uh, very, the left is very clear generally. We're going to smear our opponents as violent extremists, purveyors of hate speech. That is the predicate to prosecute this domestic war on terrorism. Uh, the stand down, just so, you know, not uh, using military jargon to uh, some's misunderstanding, is... Um, uh, usually implemented to sort of carve out more time for training, discussion, other events where units focus on the issue at hand. So, for example, in the past, it's been issues like sexual assault or suicide. Uh, the two-month window, according to the Pentagon spokesman, would allow for enough time for units to strategize and schedule how they'll stand down rather than declaring a specific day for everyone to do the same work. So uh, military getting the uh, propagandized instruction on violent extremists 
I can only imagine that uh, Ibram Kendi and Robin DiAngelo and uh, the full comp- uh, uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates, the full complement of race hustlers, identitarian thugs will uh, be invited to uh, facilitate this discussion about uh, identifying and rooting out, quote unquote, extremism in the military's ranks. And obviously, this is no defense to anybody who is uh, has a poisonous ideology. Uh, it's just a question of how you think you address one poisonous ideology by promoting another one. I guess that's the question I have. Maybe that could be the subject of another stand down. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Follow us at uh, danprofshow.com, at Dan Proft, and at Dan Prof Show on social media. The uh, prospect of a reality czar. This from technology reporter Kevin Roos in the New York Times. Several experts I spoke with recommended that the Biden administration put together a cross-agency task force to tackle disinformation and domestic extremism, which would be led by something like a quote-unquote reality czar. Yeah, as I said, Ministry of Truth, anybody? That should work out well. This is uh, the way to deal with uh, QAnon social media posts and uh, the OAN newscasts and anything else that they can uh, tag under the headers of disinformation and domestic extremism. This uh, will really be a wondrous development in the rule of law for free society, won't it? For more on this and a couple other topics, please to be rejoined again by Adam Mill, an attorney specializing in labor and employment and public discrimination, public administration law, I should say. Contributor to the Federalist, amgreatness.com and The Daily Caller. Adam, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So uh, what about that? Uh, you know, somebody to, to make sure everybody knows what the truth is and uh, get those domestic terrorists who are trafficking in untruths uh, under uh, under heel. Yeah, I mean, this is really chilling. We have uh, a number of investigations that have been opened up from the Capitol Hill protests and the Capitol Hill riots, and the FBI is fanning out across the country. And I believe the first arrest has already been made of somebody who did not enter the Capitol building, did not destroy any property, but while spending time in front of a microphone, apparently said something that upset people. And now if you upset people and they take action as a result of you upsetting them, then you're responsible for their actions if you're conservative. If you're not conservative, then it's a completely different rule. You can stand there in front of a microphone, you can call to burn things down, and you won't be arrested, and you know, you're, and, and everything will be just fine. But yeah, the Ministry of Truth absolutely comes to mind. It's amazing how people can say something like a czar, a, a reality czar, and not understand the historic implications and and that's the kind of thing that that's the kind of position that exists in North Korea or China and it's just it's like it's I don't know if it's ignorance of history or if they're enjoying getting our hackles up for the people who do know history. Well, history, what what history? We're starting fresh. Uh, all that's wiped away including any foundations of a free society. This is why if you raise the like the Supreme Court standard in Brandenburg uh, with respect to hate speech, well that's just quickly dismissed if you 
raise the specter of the rule of law. You don't understand, uh, Adam. What we have here is a problem. We have people who don't understand what the truth is, and this is a way to solve that problem. The, we're, we are completely unconstrained by things like the Constitution or federal statutory law or Supreme Court jurisprudence. Yeah, and Dan, I think um, you know the latest article I wrote on was about uh, was about basically this break that our executive branch is making from the Constitution. You know, when you start with uh, you start with the idea that all federal employees are required to make one oath of loyalty, and that oath of loyalty is to the Constitution itself. It's not to Joe Biden. It's not to James Comey. It's not to you know get Trump. Um, it's to the Constitution. And this kind of erosion of what does the Constitution mean? Well, it means whatever left to say it means, has really kind of made it so that that oath doesn't mean anything either. And what I wrote about recently was this um, uh, this Kevin Kleinsmith plea deal, uh, which, you know, not under the First Amendment, but under the Fourth Amendment and also the separation of powers, we had a huge problem with the Crossfire Hurricane uh, uh, investigation. Uh, what happened was in August of 2016, as they were pivoting away from trying to not investigate Hillary Clinton and turn turn up this or gin up this investigation of Donald Trump, they were casting about for somebody to do one of these intrusive FISA warrants against. So, uh, it's a wraparound warrant that basically allows them to tap everything. And, you know, you think about your cell phone has a camera and has a, has a, uh, a microphone in it. So does your computer, uh, your mail. I mean, just everything that the government could possibly surveil, plus two hops. So if you're talking to your best friend and your best friend is talking to somebody, these FISA warrants allow the government to look into those relationships, too. So it's two concentric circles away. So it's a huge, incredibly powerful. Well, they, they looked at George Papadopoulos. Uh, they looked at Michael Flynn. They looked at a bunch of these Trump associates, but they settled on Carter Page uh, because Carter Page was going back and forth to Russia. He was styled himself as an expert on Russia. And he was associated with the Trump campaign, which had named him as like a, an advisor or something like that. So in August, they're, um, they're, what they need to get a warrant is probable cause that Carter Page is a spy for Russia, and it needs to be reasonable. The warrant needs to be a reasonable way of gaining the information. They just had two problems. First, Carter Page got wind of the fact that the FBI was coming after him. So he wrote an open letter published in the Washington Post to James Comey saying, hey, I hear you have questions about my Russia connections. Send an FBI agent over and I will talk to anyone at any time about what I know. And so that makes the search unreasonable when the target is willing to provide the information without a search. And there's reason to believe that he's being he's being truthful, that you can't you can't go through his underwear drawer. You have to at least give that a chance before you go forward. And then the other uh, the other problem was they didn't have probable cause that he was a Russian spy because that same month in August, the CIA wrote the FBI a memo saying, oh, yeah, uh, Carter Page has been working for us from like 2007 to 2013. So only about three years before they're planning on uh, doing this. He's been he's been approved for operational information. Like we've been a lot, we've been using him to spy against Russia. Right, and and, so, and we, I mean, we we you know we we've talked about that this at, at some length over the years that it's been, and 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 so the Kleinsmith plea deal for a purposely doctoring an email to make it uh, read the opposite of what it legitimately read, and he gets probation, and then we still have the Durham investigation that's an open question, but obviously there is very little hope and a great deal of cynicism about the prospect of that producing anything now, 
And so where we left when it comes to uh, law enforcement under our top law enforcement and intelligence agencies. Right. And, you know, I wrote an article a while back about the fact that I didn't expect Smith to get anything because Smith was not in on that conversation in August of 2016 when it turned out that the, that the CIA said uh, Page was a source. He came into the picture in June of 2017 when Carter Page gave an interview and said, I don't know why they're accusing me of being a Russian spy. I've been helping in the intelligence community against Russia for years. And so this set off alarm bells in the Crossfire Hurricane team. And this is all this is all profiled in the Inspector General's report. This is this isn't me making things up. It's not a conspiracy theory. It's documented. And so they they went to Kleinsmith and said, go check with the CIA to see if this is true. Has Carter Page been a source? Now, by now, they've issued the original warrant of renewal, a second renewal. And now they're working on the third renewal. Of the, of the warrant. It's been going on for nine months. So he does, and he finds out exactly what the CIA told the FBI 10 months earlier, which is, oh yeah, Carter Page has been our source. So he sends two copies of an email that he received from the CIA, the true one, and then the doctored one. And he sends that to, he says, the agent that actually swore the affidavit to the FISA court, plus his superiors, plus you know anyone who, who would be in a position of authority in the FBI. Only Klein Smith has been charged with a crime. He's not the one who made the decision. He's not the one who pulled the trigger on the affidavit and, and filed it in front of the FISA court. He doctored the document, but it was somebody else who made the decision. So the point is, you know, much like they needed uh, some thinly veiled predicate to do what they were intent to do. And so Carter Page provided that, at least so they thought they have this. This is, this is you know, just sort of a textbook fall guy stuff here. And uh, now with the uh, the new administration, you know, play the waiting game, wait out the previous administration, have all your institutional allies go out and slow things down and muddy the waters, which they did. You got your fall guy. He gets a slap on the wrist. He can uh, have a soft landing somewhere someday, which I'm sure he will in the not too distant future. And uh, everything uh, moves on like it was before this uh, unfortunate Trump interregnum. Isn't that what's happening? Uh, it's worse than that, uh, because you can look at the people who probably were involved in making this decision, people like Andrew McCabe, Peter Strzok, uh, James Comey. They're all rich men now. Uh, Rod Rosenstein uh, personally signed that last FISA renewal. They're all rich men. They've all, uh, except for Rosenstein, they've all signed book deals. Rosenstein is a, is a, is a uh, partner at a mega law firm right now. Uh, so, yeah, they, <laughs> it's like they robbed the bank and then they wrote a book about it and then they got rich. And uh, and nothing will happen. So, yeah, I mean, Kleinsmith and Kleinsmith's position is I never lied to anybody. I told my people the truth, which, um, you know, I gave them the two versions of the email. And then what they decided to do with the with the fabricated email, they knowingly did. And uh, and, you know, that's on them. So that was his defense. Uh, Adam Mill, attorney yeah. specializing in labor and employment and public administration law, contributor to the Federalist and Greatness and the Daily Caller. Thanks for joining us, Adam. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome 
Welcome back to the show. I wanted to pick back up on a topic we uh, tackled in part with uh, Alex Berezow, microbiologist, USA Today columnist, a little bit earlier in the program, and that is the uh, adverse reactions to the COVID vaccines. ABC News reporting uh, fact check. Here we are with our fact checkers. And yes, I know what you're thinking. Who checks the fact checkers? That's the appropriate question. No link between COVID-19 vaccines and those who die after receiving them. And I'm not saying that's erroneous. I'm just saying these sorts of declarations leave me asking more questions or wanting more information as opposed to less. Also, too, it's interesting to note here the reporting on the fact checking. Scientists warn isolated cases of adverse reactions, while tragic, do not mean the vaccines are to blame. True. This uh, little contextual nugget. An average of 8,000 people die each day in the United States. Some of them may have just received a coronavirus vaccine. We have to be very careful about causality, said Dr. John Brownstein, an epidemiologist at Boston Children's Hospital. There are going to be spurious relationships, especially as the vaccine is targeting elderly or those with chronic conditions. Just because these events happen in proximity to the vaccine does not mean the vaccine caused these events. Well, golly gee, isn't that interesting? Dr. Brownstein, could you say the same thing about COVID infection? We have to be very careful about causality. There are going to be spurious relationships, especially as the infection is targeting the uh, targeting elderly or those with chronic conditions. Just because these events happen in proximity, the infection and the death does not mean that the infection caused these events. Could you substitute infection for vaccine and make the same argument? Has any were, were, were these same people making the same argument about covid over the last year? No. Were they providing the same context of when you talk about case fatality rates or just giving the raw numbers of people who had died and were tagged as having died from COVID and using anecdotal stories and context-free data points to engender fear for the purpose of advancing control. We have to be very careful about causality. Wow. And I'm not saying that this Brownstein guy was uh, a problem. I don't, it's the first I've read of any of his pronouncements, but I'm just saying, generally speaking, how much flimflammery have we heard from those cloaked in, uh, credentials as public health officials, medical doctors, not to mention, of course, when it gets translated by these dum-dums who sit on cable news channel desks and so forth. So uh, you'll note the difference in how we tackle it on this show, as we did with Alex Berezow. We can understand what the most likely outcome is, not the worst case scenario, and have that inform the way that we conduct our lives. Frustrating year. Uh, So this compilation of some of the posts on social media, people just sharing their stories. And again, this is not verified and I'm not trafficking in uh, definitive statements about what caused what, but there are questions that are being raised. And when people have questions, if they don't get answers that address their questions, then, you know, they're likely to cling to misinformation or uh, they're likely to, to, to form a misunderstanding. I mean, so for and, and, you know, this this is being talked about. So you need to talk about it. you need to address it, including with people who are experts. That's why I had Alex Berzo on the show. I'm not one, but I I'm have enough common sense to have conversations about this. So, for example, one person tweeted, I work for a health service at work yesterday. I had four severe vaccine reactions. Two of these had serious chest pains and dizziness and other flu symptoms. I can't leave the bed. One numbness and tingling and stroke symptoms. Three of the four were sent to the hospital. Uh, oddly enough, none had COVID-19 issues. This was all issues from the vaccine. And again, uh, there's been talk about, oh, you get a sore arm or you get a headache, you get some dizziness. But on balance, that's the worst it's going to be for most people. And so it's worth the protection, particularly if you're older and 
have real susceptibility to serious illness from infection. That's what I'm talking about. It doesn't have to be mindless, happy talk, and it doesn't have to be fatalism. It has to be, you know, informed consideration. Uh, another uh, person uh, tweeted out, I received my first Pfizer vaccination on the 23rd of December. And the 3rd of January was the start of my symptoms, earache, headaches, some facial numbness. On the 4th of January, I was diagnosed with Bell's palsy. Now on day nine of steroids, now just waiting, uh, now just a waiting game on full recovery. Okay. There have been reports that um, Larry King, including from his his son, uh, got the COVID vaccine shortly before he died. Does that uh, make it causal? No, of course not. But it just raises the issue. Somebody else. I went to work today and ended up in the ER. Thank God I work at a hospital. I'm positive this episode is from the COVID-19 vaccine. My heartbeat was 239. I haven't felt right since I got the injection on Tuesday. Had a headache ever since. I'm not getting the second shot. This was my experience with the vaccine. I felt I should share it. Now, you know, again, is the person disclosing underlying conditions that uh, perhaps exacerbated his reaction to the vaccine, as we talked a little bit with Berezow. I mean, this isn't this is meant to say, let's take the mysticism out of it. Let's not ignore what people are saying. Let's try and address it head on. Because otherwise you get this about the vaccine like we got with infection. This op-ed in the New York Times from Courtney Zoffness, who's apparently, you know, an academic at Drew University. Of course, my six-year-old has the coronavirus. I'm trying to stay calm. Well, it turns out she's not succeeding in staying calm based on this op-ed. And I, I don't want to be dismissive because apparently her one son had some underlying respiratory condition when he was an infant and so and, and later asthma. And so they're understandably concerned about his infection. But her six year old got infected and, and you, you you read all these things that she's doing, these evasive actions and um, I, and, and, and the, 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 the histrionics regarding his teacher and schools. I don't need to remind him that his teacher tested positive, that she's home convalescing with a fever. That's why we got tested in the first place. But this fiery, inexhaustible boy with the perpetual holes in his pants and sneeze cannot help touching every wall and gate we pass on our Brooklyn sidewalks. And I think about the two and a half days since we took the test, uh, during which time I helped him blow his nose, wash his face, polished off a glass of orange juice. Now I mobilize and procure masks for everyone. My husband designates an area in the living room for him. I don't want to have COVID, he cries. I, will I die, he says. Will you all of this and about uh, two thirds down the piece, you, you learn this. I tell my son that everything will be OK. I try to mean it. I say that being asymptomatic is a good sign that he has a strong immune system. He's asymptomatic. He's not sick. I mean, he's infected, but he's not sick. And she goes on to, you know, the whole preternaturally anxious. Uh, I rely on therapy. My children have seen me distraught over seven-day averages and incautious loved ones and an immoral present who have helped accelerate the spread. So there you go. There's the tell where she's coming from. But this is the uh, the, induced, uh, the, the, the induction of, of hysteria, the introduction of hysteria really into the body populace that has spread even more quickly than COVID and frankly lingers a lot longer than COVID for most people. My six-year-old has a coronavirus. I'm trying to stay calm. And we're supposed to extrapolate from this what? Particularly about a, an age group that is virtually immune. And oh, by the way, 
uh, her six-year-old basically the same, and he will be after he gets through his asymptomatic uh, uh, infection. So I don't want to do on the vaccination side what uh, so many have done to politicize on the infection side. We won't do that here, and uh, hopefully you won't do that within your circles of influence. So at least in some pockets of the country, we can have informed discussion. This is the Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the program. Uh, Earlier in the show, we spoke with Chuck Marone from Strong Towns, strongtowns.org, and we talked about uh, the future of big city America, even uh, mid-sized city America, and uh, how a lot of cities are not in a position to be sort of forward thinking and planning, you know, vision questing. They're in the position of trying to deal with the consequences of the policy choices they've made in the last year and, frankly, in some places over the last several decades. And so this uh, profile on the city of Portland was an interesting one that I read in Forbes. I just think of uh, the opening of uh, the show Portlandia, where it's like, keep Portland weird. It's this sort of bohemian place that's liberal and wacky and, uh, and, and, and colorful in that way. And uh, now I, I don't even think you can say Portland has become a caricature of Portlandia because that would include that would that would imply there was something humorous about what's happening there. And it, doesn't seem very funny at all, given the violence, the turning over of the city to mobsters in the form of Antifa. Uh, our friend uh, Andy No almost murdered by Antifa last year. Uh, wrote, written a book about it as he's tracked their movements. The uh, impotent of local officials there, starting with the mayor, Ted Wheeler. Um, it's uh, perhaps um, the city that has been on the fastest downward trajectory since the COVID outbreak. For more on that, let's uh, speak with the gentleman who put together the profile and Forbes I'm referencing, Death of a City, the Portland story. His name is Bill Connolly, senior contributor to Forbes, chairman of the board of the Cascade Policy Institute, and author of The Flexible Stance, Thriving in a Boom-Bust Economy. Uh, Bill, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hello, Dan. Uh, with respect to Portland, it's not as sudden as Pompeii, as you reference in your piece, but but I mean, the, the descent uh, and the pace of it is striking, even as compared to cities that sort of have been slowly declining over many years, like my hometown of Chicago. That's right. Cities across the country are hurting because of the COVID pandemic. And I would say here in Portland, that is still the biggest problem. Uh, people are sick. People are are not going downtown. They are um, avoiding restaurants uh, and um, theaters, that kind of stuff. But we have, in addition, a set of poor policies that result from poor leadership. And it's not just the mayor or the um, 
other elected officials like our district attorney who does not like to prosecute uh, riot related cases mm-hmm. but uh the the business community the nonprofit leaders the religious leaders there's a failure of leadership across the board to address high housing costs the persistent riots and the homelessness on on the streets so I believe that Portland has shot itself in the foot and usually I don't know if you have ever done that but usually People survive a gunshot wound to their feet so long as they get treatment. But the Portland leadership is denying that it has any wound at all. And as a result, uh, we are at risk of uh, dying as a city. It's interesting you talk about sort of the housing costs and and, uh, and making it unaffordable for middle-income families, middle-income people and families. It's just always remarkable to me sort of the, the most uh, – uh, progressive places uh, and, and proudly branded as such, Portland, uh, San Francisco, number one, have the uh, greatest in, uh, income disparity uh, and the biggest homeless problems. That's right. And our land use policy, what we uh, did here in Portland is we drew a line and we called it the urban growth boundary and uh, developers cannot build subdivisions or apartment houses outside of that boundary. And it was so the people who owned houses um, would benefit uh, when you drove to your second house at the beach or in um, central Oregon, you did not have to drive through subdivisions, you'd drive through uh, farms and that looks nice, but it really disadvantaged people who were not homeowners, it disadvantaged renters. And funny thing is it had a racist impact. The people who passed that law were not racist intentionally, but it had the effect of making life very hard for lower income people, which included uh, many of Portland's minority communities. So here we have... That seems to happen a lot when you uh, make policy based on sentiment rather than economic. (laughs) That's right. So here we have leaders in in the community who want to help minorities but they're supporting policies that hurt minorities. Uh, when we come back uh, with Bill Connolly, I want to explore uh, the, the footprint Antifa has in Portland. Um, just how much have they been able to essentially take over there, uh, or has it uh, been sort of overhyped? We'll get his perspective. Bill Connolly, senior contributor to Forbes, chairman of the board of the Cascade Policy Institute, and author of The Flexible Stance, Thriving in a Boom-Bust Economy. Listen, the more you'll know, this is, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Bill Connolly, senior contributor to Forbes, chairman of the board of the Cascade Policy Institute and author of The Flexible Stance, Thriving in a Boom-Bust Economy, talking about his piece in Forbes, Death of a City, The Portland Story, as I mentioned before the break, Bill, Antifa and the violence there and the stories over the last year or 18 months of them sort of taking over the streets, even doing things like directing traffic. The challenger in the last mayoral contest to Ted Wheeler, the mayor of Portland, who was an avowed member of Antifa and, you know, came fairly close to defeating him, actually. You know, just how much of a presence does Antifa have, how much influence and, and how much of a problem are they for Portland regaining some of their sense? 
Well, most of the time in most of the city, there is very little evidence of Antifa. Uh, my wife and I went for a walk through some of the urban area um, where there had been riots recently and life looked normal, as normal as it can be when all the restaurants are closed and uh, you know coffee shops are closed. We did see the uh, federal immigration ICE, Immigration Customs Enforcement Building, uh, a federal facility that has plywood over what used to be windows. But uh, most of Portland is going on as normal. What is bothersome is when you go downtown, in addition to some restaurants that close because there are very few people uh, working downtown, you have boarded up stores. I've seen downtowns with empty storefronts, but they usually don't have to board up the windows. But there's been so much destruction of glass that they've been boarded up. There are um, obscene graffiti, include calling for the death of Andy No. Some of these riots moved into the suburbs, uh, not often, but every now and then they'll do what they call direct action. Uh, they destroyed windows at the uh, Tigard, Oregon Police Department, a suburb close in. You can see their signs, but most of the time they're not visible. And so uh, the the posture of the police, you mentioned the local prosecutor doesn't like to prosecute uh, rioting related charges. We see that around the country, too. And uh, a lot of criminologists have argued uh, exactly that has been the and, and, and police being on their heels as uh, the, the proximate cause of the 42 percent spike in murders in the United States 2020 over 2019. But the the posture of the police, of the, the city leadership, uh, are, are they just sort of trying to manage the decline or are they actually trying to take steps to revitalize these areas that have, as you're describing, been shuttered? Well, the police are frequently outnumbered. I think they're always outnumbered and they are always being videoed. And you have an unfortunate situation where if somebody in the mob throws a, a bottle or a rock at a police officer, well, that's a crime of assault. If the police try to arrest that person, other people, peaceful protesters, get in the officer's way and um, the officers can't get around these people. Now, back in the 60s, if, you try, if somebody tried to get in a police officer's way who was making a bus, he'd pull out a baton and start thumping heads. Right. Uh, our officers are not doing that, uh, partially because they're on video, but also I think they've learned a lot of restraint so their, their, their hands are tied. If they do arrest somebody for uh, obstructing a police officer, which is a, a, a crime, uh, the, that person will not be prosecuted. And in fact, the Multnomah County District Attorney Schmidt is not prosecuting the same crimes that are being prosecuted with respect to the U.S. Capitol riot, which is, you know, hmm. disorderly conduct, obstructing a peace officer, criminal trespass. Those are not being prosecuted in Portland. And so, I mean, you're, you're, you're speaking to it. I mean, you have uh, downtown businesses that are boarded up. So there, there's been some lasting impact on the business community. A efforts to revitalize, efforts to think about uh, policies to address the homelessness issue that you raise in your piece as well. Is, is any of that afoot or are they just uh, sort of, you know, a bunker mentality trying to get through each passing day? You know, it's a little bit of both. On the housing cost, they think the solution is affordable housing. And if we were on TV, I'd be putting air quotes around yes, affordable. Yes, right, yes. 
in some cases, they are uh, purchasing existing apartments to offer them for rent at below market uh, rents, but that just takes other housing off the market, making uh, you know people who are willing to pay and able to pay uh, market rents um, have to go somewhere else. But they're also building some new affordable housing, but affordable housing costs more than regular housing, surprisingly enough. We have a version of the Davis-Bacon Act that mandates uh, union labor on all projects. And so affordable housing costs more than regular housing. I, I told my wife my next boat is going to be an affordable boat. <laughs> uh, and she yeah. thought I was being thrifty until I explained that affordable boats cost more than um, regular boats. Yeah, it's all in how you term it, right? It's all in the, it's all in the marketing. Um, and so, so what's your perspective on, on the uh, sort of near-term future of Portland? Well, near-term, uh, you know, COVID is important, getting people vaccined, uh, vaccinated. Uh, the governor's decided that um, uh, prison inmates and school teachers have priority over senior citizens, uh, which seems kind of weird to me, but that's, uh, that's Oregon. Uh-huh. I think that we're going to get healthier and um, some people will start coming uh, back to downtown, but across the country, uh, there are not going to be as many people in downtowns uh, going forward as there had been. So we're going to have a little bit of suburbanization, but suburbanization, people being able to work remotely and then wanting to live remotely uh, flies in the face of our land use policy. So I think we're going to have a big argument within our state about uh, whether we uh, go to the suburbs. And then our homeless policy uh, is is sad. It's sad for the homeless as well as uh, the appearance. Uh, there are, are little tent encampments throughout the city. You can't drive uh, or walk without seeing a few people in tents. It's very visible. And we don't really have a good solution. Our public leaders don't have a good solution. But to tell you the truth, there are no magic bullets uh, on the homeless problem. But at some point, I think the city uh, leadership needs to say uh, there are some standards, there are some rules that everybody has to live by. He is Bill Connolly, senior contributor to Forbes, chairman of the board of the Cascade Policy Institute and author of The Flexible Stance, Thriving in a Boom-Bust Economy. Bill, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Great talking with you, Dan. Take care. Listen to podcasts of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. To close it out uh, on this installment, uh, some good commentary from uh, Joel Ross over at Citadel Realty Advisors. I've mentioned him a few times before on this show. Does a pretty compelling uh, sort of financial and political newsletter on COVID. A couple points on COVID in the bat with the backdrop of the two trillion dollars in funny money the Biden administration wants to print. Of the sixty-seven billion dollars allocated to K through twelve schools in the last two bills, they have only drawn. billion halfway through the school year. $67 billion was allocated in the last two COVID relief bills, and the schools have drawn less than half a billion. And now the Dems want to add $130 billion more to no end 
It's a pure payoff to the teachers' unions, to zero benefit to the taxpayers, the kids, or the economy. We do not need more stimulus, and Biden and his people are lying about an economic crisis. GDP is growing well now, and by Q2, as the shots are much more widespread, it will boom with all that pent-up demand and huge excess savings, as we discussed a bit yesterday. And in point of fact, uh, uh, there is... um, CBO saying with no more stimulus, Congressional Budget Office, with no more stimulus, we'll be back at levels before March of last year by this June. The White House economic policies are uh, are a policy program of what amounts to a government takeover of the factors of the economy and production. Of course, uh, the opportunity to exert more control with the backdrop of the pandemic, which is why you need to continue to propagate the fear even as things are getting better, take full advantage of every moment you have. Cases are down 41 percent since the peak in December. Shots are ramping up. Now we're at like 1.3 million per day. Um, and um, you're looking at perhaps uh, uh, even earlier herd immunity with that vaccination level uh, than what was projected to be you know, June or July of this year. But you have to keep up appearances. Right. Uh, And so he he goes uh, he goes on to say, does Ross, that everything now depends on Manchin and the Senate parliamentarian uh, with respect to this two trillion dollar deal, even with Biden suggesting that uh, he's open minded to a smaller cohort of Americans receiving the next round of checks, the fourteen hundred dollar checks. It makes no sense, writes Ross, to hand $2,000 to a family making $75,000 and employed now, which is like a giant bonus, when they don't really need it to live on in most of the country. It's purely just a political bribe. Well, we have become accustomed to being bribed with our own money in this country, particularly in blue states, but in this country generally. And um, unfortunately, there are not enough Republicans making the point in the unvarnished way that Joel Ross does, because this is the argument that needs to be had if Republicans are to have any credibility on this issue and uh, any distinction between themselves and the Democrat socialists exercising this sort of backdoor backdoor takeover of more of the means of production, as Ross described. Thank you for joining us for another edition of The Dan Prof Show. Please continue to listen to the show so you can stay informed, act courageously, and we can live freely in America, and join us again to close out the week tomorrow. This is the Dan Proft Show.